Hello, my name is Bill, and uh, today I'll be reading an Easter passage from Luke. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down and their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He said to them, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Thank you, Bill. Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Great to see you today. So glad you decided to come here on Easter Sunday. We're thrilled to have you here. We're beginning a brand new series called The Inescapable Story. Uh, it is a story that we see all throughout the Bible. Actually, Bill just read it. Jesus says, as he meets these disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says, you know what? You guys are feeling pretty bad, but let me tell you something. The entire storyline of the Bible is all about one story, and it's my story. It's not a book of random events. But he's all the way back to Moses and the prophets. Every bit of scripture is really all about me. There's only one story being told. This story is so magnificent. It's so incredible. The disciples heard this story for three years with Jesus Christ, but it sounded too good to be true. You know what happens when we hear a story that sounds too good to be true? We think it's too good to be true. Exactly. What is the resurrection then? The resurrection to the disciples were, they couldn't believe it. They were so depressed after Jesus Christ dies on the cross. But it was at the resurrection. They said, oh my gosh, this story actually is true. Because the resurrection is the final proof that the story the Bible's telling and the story that Jesus Christ told was actually for real. It was true. That's why we celebrate Easter. We see this story all over the place. We see it in life. We see it in literature. We see it in all the great, great movies. It constantly is hitting on a, this theme about somebody sacrificing their lives for somebody else. A Tale of Two Cities. I know you're familiar with it because you had to read it when you were in high school, right? A Tale of Two Cities is about it. Les Mis is about it. Crime and Punishment is about it. My goodness, Harry Potter is about this story and what Harry Potter's mother does for him. We call people in life who live out these stories, we call them heroes, and we celebrate them. And I feel like God is just constantly reminding So a couple years ago, it just struck me. It's like, oh my goodness, why do we see this story repeated in movies and repeated in life and repeated in literature and then starting in the very beginning of the Bible all the way through over... Is this God saying, I'm trying to get your attention. This story is the greatest story he's ever told. And it actually is true. It's actually true. Firefighters 
who rush in when everybody else is rushing out. We call them heroes, don't we? Soldiers who go in as we are running out. We call them heroes. Heroes, don't we? They're heroes. I'm going to show you pictures from the Washington Post. Some of you uh, were around, or some of you remember this. This is Air Florida Flight 90. Took off from National Airport before it was Reagan National Airport back in the, win- in the winter. Air Florida no longer exists because of this right here. It crashed. It landed on the back of the 14th Street Bridge and plunged into the icy waters of the Potomac River. Six people emerged from that jet in the Potomac, and a helicopter came, and that helicopter was like their one way out for those six people. And there's a guy named Arlen Williams, Arlen Williams, who has been hailed as a hero. And what he did to the people who were hanging on to that wreckage is when that safety ring, if you can see it there on the front page of the post, that safety ring, it was lowered from that helicopter and Arlen grabbed it. And you know what he did? He clung on it to it for safety. He didn't. He passed it to somebody he didn't even know. And he allowed them to go free. And then it came back. It drugged them to safety out of the freezing waters. And it came and it came to him again. And he handed it away again to somebody he didn't even know over and over and over again until there was only one person left, Arlen Williams. And when they came back to get him, you know where he was? He had died. And we celebrated him as a hero for people that didn't even know. NBC News recently did, actually a couple years ago, a report about this, about heroism, extreme heroism at that level. And what they said in their article was fascinating to me. I want to read just an excerpt from it. Listen to this. Heroism is one of the last remaining riddles of human behavior. We're rid- we, what? Extreme heroism springs from something that no scientific theory can fully explain. We can't explain it. Why would somebody give their life for somebody else? Why would somebody rescue? Why would Arlen Williams, where did he get that thought from? Where do, why does this keep surfacing? Why do writers of great literature keep hitting on this theme? Why do great movies hit on this theme of somebody? We can't explain it. Where did the idea come? How, what inspired us to do this? We can't figure it out. Could it be? Could it be that we were inspired because we were created in the image of God and it's the only story being told to us in the Bible that somebody gives their life for somebody else to rescue them? to rescue them. It is the only story that we're being told. Well, all great stories, it's very important to look at the beginning. That's how the beginning of the story starts. So we're going to look at the beginning so we can figure this story out. And that starts in the book of Genesis. What is the book of Genesis really all about? Particularly the first three chapters in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. What is that all about? We see here that God is actually giving us one story. And the one story is this, that God in the book of Genesis is creating a shrine for his presence, that God is building a vast temple in which his presence is, and all of us were intended to live fully in the presence of God, fully immersed in God's presence. We see that we're very drawn to six days of creation. We're like, oh, we want to debate it, talk about it, what's up? God is consumed with the seventh day. I want to show you this. Let's look at a couple slides here. In the Hebrew, don't open up your Bible in English and say, start counting words. This is in Hebrew, all right? Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1. there's seven words in the first verse. In the second verse of chapter 1, there's 14 words. In the three verses of chapter 2 that lead it off, there's 35 words. I'm not done. Let's look at the next slide. The name God is used 35 times. I'm figuring you picked up on this already, but these are all multiples of... Thank you very much. 
Okay? Earth, 21 times. Heaven and firmament, 21 times. And it was so, you seven times. God saw that it was good seven times. God is drawing our attention. Creation is all about the seventh day. That's the purpose of creation because seven is sacred. Seven, God inhabits, it says this, that God blessed, blessed the seventh day. The se- we were all intended to live in the seventh day, to constantly live in the presence of God. God blessed it and made it holy. How do you make something holy? Did God just say, boom, there you go, holiness. Listen, holiness is not a commodity that's given away. It's not like a card dealer dealing cards. Hey, hey you take some holiness, you take some holiness, you take some holiness. You want to hit a holiness? Yeah, hit me on holiness. Hit me, hit me, baby. Hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me. I'll take it. That's not the way it works. Why is something holy? Nothing's holy because God says, boom, you're holy. Something's holy because God inhabits that. The seventh day is holy because God inhabits the seventh day. Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments really important in the Bible. It's the master of all laws. Do you know which one of those Ten Commandments gets the most airtime? Is it put God first? Is it no idols? Don't lie, cheat, steal? Which one gets the most writing of the Ten Commandments? The Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is more important than murder. The Sabbath day is more important than put God first. I mean, the Sabbath day gets more writing than anything else. Why? Because that is the day that God inhabits. It's holy because God is there. We were intended to live in the very presence of God. But we've been cut off. Genesis chapter 3. A wall has gone up between us and God. Now we are isolated. And that's why we have the book of Leviticus. You know, the book of Leviticus was the first book that children were given to study in the synagogue. It was the first book. Today, it's the last book that we would ever study. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Those people who are laughing are people that have read the book of Leviticus before. Like, what is this all about? The book of Leviticus, the reason why it was the first book, because it was the protocols, the process, the procedures, if you will, of how a person could enter, re-enter into the presence of God. And that's why we would study it first, because that's where we're intended. God intended us to live in God's presence. We want to live in God's presence. You know, a number one reason that people go to church in the United States of America? Because they want to encounter God. They want to experience, whether you're a church person or you've never been to church in your life, they ask people who've never been to church in life, if you went, if you did, I know you're not going to church, but if you did, why would you go? And you know what they said? Number one answer, I would like to encounter God. God wants us to live in his presence. We want to live in his presence. And so Leviticus gives us the protocols to re-entering the presence of God. Listen, none of us would go down to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, jump that fence, run across that lawn, knock on that door and say, I'm here. We wouldn't do that because every king and every president has protocols. They have a process. They have procedures. That's what Leviticus is. And for the next five weeks, we're going to take a look at the five protocols of re-entering the presence of God because it's really what we long for. For the next five weeks, we're going to immerse ourselves in the presence of God because it's really, really what we long for in our lives, to enter into the presence of God. So I'm going to give you a couple whys real quick, just real quick, why we want to be in the presence of God, and then how do we do it. So why first? Why? Psalm 16 lists for us about 11 great, fantastic reasons of why somebody would want to be in the presence of God. It says there's strength. We need strength. It says there's wisdom in God's presence. In other words, what it's saying is, if you have ever had a difficulty making a decision, you say, oh God, if you would just show me what to do. God says, in his presence, he helps us to decide and make the right decisions. My goodness, I'd love to be there. It says, in God's presence, there's safety. I'd love to be there. There's all these great benefits. I want to talk about just two. 
just I'm going to laser it on two, that are so relevant to today. Let me read it to you. Exodus 33, 14. It's on the back of your bulletin or it's on the screen right here behind me. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So it says God's presence will give us rest, not stress, stress, which we have an epidemic of stress in our world today. God, we want to be in God. Listen, there's a lot of practical things the Bible talks about how we can de-stress and experience God's rest. There's rest in God's presence. There's stress out. Of, there's all kinds of practice. We're not doing that today. We want to talk about at the deepest level, our souls, our souls find rest in God's presence. We'll get to the practical stuff at another time, at another series. We have an epidemic of stress today. I need you all to help me, particularly you guys who are super hip, and help me to identify the name of this song and what band is actually singing it. Can we hit it, Ben? Let's go ahead. Look at them. If you know the name of the song, go ahead and scream it out. Stressed out. Stressed out. Okay. This song is called the anthem of the millennial anxiety. This song. Look at them. They're so stressed out on those big wheel bikes. It's incredible. He's stressed out. Let me read you the words of the song, okay? It says this. This is what they're singing about. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when mama sang us to sleep and now we're stressed out. You know what's so cool, everybody? I read an article about this recently. 12 and 13-year-old kids are running around singing, oh, I'm wishing for those good old days. 12 and 13-year-old kids, just take me back to the good old days when I wasn't stressed out. You know what the new party drug is today, according to the article? Xanax and Zoloft. That's the new party drug today because people are so incredibly stressed out. And it tells us this, that teenagers can't even sleep. They're so stressed out. My gosh, when I was a teenager, I couldn't wake up. Now they can't sleep because it's growing, growing, growing. And God says when we're in his presence that we will have rest, not stress. Well, did you see this cover for those of you like Consumer Reports? Uh, February this year. It's 3 a.m. and you're wide awake. And what it tells us is there's an epidemic of insomnia. People can't sleep. People can't sleep because we're absolutely stressed out. The article says this. This is how it begins. Americans everywhere are desperate for shut-eye, turning to drugs, supplements, and high-tech gadgets. There's two really... They, so they, they go through this whole thing and then they interview people who are... Men, and a number of these cases are actually taking Ambien. And um, one person says that they took Ambien and the police found them a mile away from their house sleepwalking. Careful if you take Ambien. One other person said they took Ambien and, and they did it on a regular basis and they kept noticing when they would wake up in the morning there was all these containers of empty food next to their bed. They said actually one morning they woke up and there was a container that had before when they went to sleep had three pounds of potato salad in it that they ate in the middle of the night. Do you wonder... If you're taking Ambien, if you're having a weight problem, it could be that you're eating your whole house. Wouldn't it be cool if we could exercise in the middle of the night? Take some Ambien and just at the gym, I'm working out, you know, losing weight all over. That'd be awesome, but this is a problem. We're completely stressed out. How do we find rest? Well, the Bible says how our souls find deep rest is in the presence of God. This is why we want to be in the presence of God. This is why, this is why God wants us to be in his presence and experience that at a deep level. Give me another, give me another one. Psalm 16, 11. Why do we want to be in God's presence? Because it says this, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. Now we, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but in January we studied this. When a person 
is joyful, full of joy. They're 31%. Scientifically speaking, very well studied, 31% better when they're full of joy than when they're not full of joy. Immediately, you reach a 31% greater capacity when you are positive and full of joy than when you're not. God wants you to live in a place where you're full of joy. That was the Garden of Eden, but we're no longer in the Garden of Eden anymore, are we? But in God's presence, we can have fullness of joy. I want to show you something, a video that actually is going to bring this point together. Here is a video of a dog that when the dog owners walks into the doggy daycare, watch how the dog reacts. Just roll the video, Ben. That dog is full of joy. That dog is so excited. My dog never reacts that way while I walk in. Happy. See that? Just jumping, jumping, jumping. And doing a little... That little salsa dance these guys. Pretty cool, actually, isn't it, man? So here's what I'm saying. When we are in, look, I would never do that, all right? Like, even if I got fully immersed in God's presence, I'm not going to do the salsa for you. But, but my soul is reacting that way. At the deepest level of my being, my soul is reacting because it's, it's full of joy in God's presence. God wants us to live in his presence. He wants us to live. That's where we are intended to be. So let's talk about protocol number one, the procedure for actually entering the God's presence. It's called the O-Law the O-Law sacrifice. In Leviticus 1, it's called the burnt offering. Let me tell you what the word means, O-Law. It means to ascend. In other words, when I follow this first procedure, follow this first procedure, would God ascend? Ascend? It means as I follow this procedure, I'm ascending right into the presence of God once again. How do I do that? How do I get there? I can't make it happen. I can't demand to be in the God's presence, but I can follow the procedures that he gave me in the book of Leviticus to enter into the presence of God. The Bible is pretty clear that our sin separates us from God. So a lot of people have a big problem with the word sin, right? And rightly slow, because some people really, in a very judgmental way, you're a sinner, you know, right? And that, we're like, oh, don't call me. Don't tell, I don't want, listen, the word sin in the Bible means to miss the mark. The word sin in the Bible simply means separation. We are separate. I think we could all agree that we're no longer living in the Garden of Eden. We're no longer living in prayer. God did not intend for us to live in a world that's going, what's going on in this world. He didn't intend for it. I hope we can all agree to that. This was not the intention. This is not what's described to us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Something's gone horribly wrong, and now we're separated. We're isolated. Salvation isn't a commodity like cards being dealt. Salvation is God's presence. And so what sin really is, it's a wall that needs to come down between us and God. How does that wall come down? How do we take that wall down? That's what protocol number one, this sacrifice, is really all about. Leviticus 1.4, here's what it says. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make, here's the word, atonement. Atonement means this. It means the wall comes down between you and God. It means you're at one with God once again. It means there's no wall anymore. And that means you're fully in God's presence. And how does that happen? How do I get one with God? I lay my hand on the head of this sacrifice. And this sacrifice, I take my situation. There's a wall up between God, me and God. And now all that wall is given to this sacrifice. The wall goes up for the sacrifice, and I get to walk into the presence of God. It says, lay my hand on it. Now, the word there for lay means to press down. So not only sacrifice, 
Are you identifying with the sacrifice, but it means to lean upon, put your weight upon. You put your weight on something you trust. If I didn't trust this floor, I wouldn't stand on this floor. It would fall, right? I trust. And so what you're doing is saying, I am identifying and I'm leaning and trusting in this sacrifice. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. I'm not trusting in my goodness. The only person that thinks you're perfect is your mother. This gets so messed, this gets, this, this story gets so messed up in church because there's so much judgmentalism. No, 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 nobody who truly understands this story could ever be anything but humble. If you've met somebody who in a very arrogant way is putting you down, it's clear they don't understand the story of the Bible. Flat out. Anybody who's ever understood this story, there's such a, a deep humility that begins to saturate their soul because there's nothing I, I deserve. I deserve to be, I deserve to be isolated, but he's taken my place. You know, in the scriptures in the Leviticus, it's talk about this scapegoat. You know what they would do as a camp? They would bring this goat out and, and the priest would, would say all the sins, every sin that's ever been committed before and after in this camp by every single person is being pronounced upon this scapegoat and then this goat is cut off and it has to go it's abandoned out of the presence of the camp and out of the presence of God so that all those who put their trust what is what is what is what is God doing he keeps telling us the same story over and over and over again this one story that Jesus Christ has given his life for us why would he do that there's we don't know we can't figure it out there's no scientific reason for it. It must be love. Press and confess to re-enter the presence of God. Press and confess. Why do I say that? Because the most important thing with this protocol number one to enter into God's presence, the most important thing is the acknowledgement that you are not in God's presence, the acknowledgement that sin is actually a wall of separation and you desire to be. And so you acknowledge, you know what? I am not perfect, but Jesus Christ, you are. I'm going to take your life and you're going to take mine and that's what it's all about. You know what happens when somebody, think about it, everybody. You ever been in a relationship with somebody who can't be wrong? You ever been in a relationship with somebody who's never wrong and they're always right? Some of you, every single service, same thing. I see some people smiling and laughing and all that kind of stuff and you're the people that get it. For those of you who are like, mm, what are you talking about? You're, <laughs> you're that person. What happens when somebody can't be wrong? When somebody can't be wrong in your relationship, then immediately a wall goes up, and that wall does not come down until that person acknowledges their wrongs, their imperfection, their sin, whatever the heck you want to call it. They have to acknowledge it, and until it does, there is a wall that exists between the two of you, and that wall's not coming down. You'll never get close to that person. I have somebody in my life. I would love to be close to them. I will never be close to that person because they will not acknowledge some things they have done that are clearly wrong. And the most important thing about this sacrifice is when you come to the cross, you're acknowledging that there's a separation. You're acknowledging that you want to be in the presence of God. You're acknowledging your imperfections. Look, all of us know that you're imperfect, but it's time that I acknowledge my imperfections. And that's what this first sacrifice is really all about and re-entering the presence of God. This story is told to us starting the book of Genesis that this wall goes up. Some of you might say, I've thought this myself many times. You know, God, why don't you just like wave your hand and say, you know what, it's all forgiven. 
poof, the separation is gone. God is holy. God is just. Thank goodness. We want justice. We crave justice. We hope that somebody is keeping order. And God says, look, if you break the law, if you go off on your own and do your own thing, make your own way, you will be cut off from me. You will be isolated from my presence. So Adam and Eve does that. Now, God could say, you know what? I was just joking. I just, just wipe all that away. It doesn't really exist. But for God to do that would make God a liar, and God can't lie. And so God has to honor it. He has to uphold his word that he said that we would be isolated and cut off, but then he does the unthinkable. And the unthinkable is, is that he steps in in our place and says, you know what? I will take your place and suffer that. It's unth- we can't. He would rescue. There's no scientific theory behind this. What would prompt people to rescue a perfect stranger like Arlen Williams? Where did that inclination come from? From the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives his life for us. And so this is the story of the Bible. The only hero in the Bible is Jesus Christ. There's not a whole, you know, the heroes of the Bible. There are no heroes. The Bible is telling us one consistent story over and over again because he wants to grab our attention. God is constantly trying to grab our attention to explain this story to us through life and through literature and through the Bible. So what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is this wall goes up and God says, I don't want a wall between us. I don't want there to be any separation. And this wall goes up. And after the wall goes up, God says this. He said, a savior is coming. A hero is coming. A Messiah is coming. And he's going to have his heel bruised, which means what? He's going to suffer. But... He is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent is the wall between you and God. It's that separation. He's going to crush it. He's going to bring it down like, oh, yes. God, I want to be in your presence. Crush that wall. Crush that serpent. And then all throughout Scripture, we keep reading about God bashing the skulls of our enemies. If, if, if I am reading the Bible without the understanding, as we read just a few minutes ago, that all Scripture is telling one story and it's all about Jesus Christ, when I read those stories, I'm like, oh, that was cool. I don't really know what to do with it, but that was a cool story. I, all over the Psalms, oh, God's bashing heads. Go, God, bash heads. That's cool. Bash heads. Numbers, a Messiah is coming. Numbers 24, 17, a Messiah is coming, and he's going to break the skull of your enemy. Oh, that's cool. I guess God really likes to smash heads. Is that what it's all about? No, it's actually telling us one story. I'm going to give you a couple for instance here. There is a story. There was a period of time when a general, a very cruel general in the Bible, in the book of Judges, by the name of Sisera. We're told this, that Sisera cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Now listen, you need to think about, you need to let your mind run wild for just a moment with as cruel as cruel can be, horrific stuff going on, horrific stuff going on for 20 years. This general named Sisera gets in a battle after 20 years with the Israelites and the unthinkable happens, the Israelites win. Sisera breaks off by himself, this general, and he runs to a tent for, for safety, kind of way up, away from the battle. And there's a woman there, her name is Jael. And he sees Jael and he says, will you keep me safe? He says, oh, yeah, 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 I'll keep you safe. Come on in. Come, come into the tent. He comes into the tent. He lays down. She puts a cover over him like a mommy. And then she gives him some milk to drink and he goes fast asleep. And in those days, the women were the ones that put all the tents up, these big, huge tents. 
And so she goes out and she grabs a huge hammer and this tent peg and she creeps in and she puts it on his temple and wham, one splits his skull wide open. Now, everybody, you tell me the moral of that story. You tell me about why that story should inspire us. What am I supposed to learn? Stay away from women in tents? Should I not go camping with women? Is that what, should I do that? Is that what this story is really all about? Beware of women in tents. For 40 years, this is why I don't go camping. <laughs> What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is God is constantly crushing the skull of our enemy of separation. And he keeps telling the story over and over and over. How about another one? The Philistines are the big enemy of the Israelites. The Philistines cruelly oppress the Israelites for years. And one day, they get in this huge battle with each other, and the Israelites are scared. So they say, we got a great idea. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody remembers Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Because that physical, that box more intensely represents the presence of God than anything else that we read out about in Scripture and they say, let's get that ark and let's take it into battle with us and use it as a lucky charm and we're going to win. So they take it into battle. You know what happens? They get defeated. God doesn't like being used like a lucky charm. They get defeated and the Philistines take the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, the presence of God, and they take it back to their temple, the temple to Dagon. And they put it in the temple. Now notice this. Three days later, after three days... The ark is in exile, and they wake up on the third day, and what happened to Dagon? Dagon has fallen face down. His head is broken off his body, and his skull has been crushed. Now, what am I supposed to learn from that story? It's not a random story. It's one story. It's one story. God keeps telling me over and over again, I'm going to crush. I'm going to take the wall down as you trust in my hero. Let me give you one last one. You don't have to know the Bible. This, know this one. All you have to do is watch basketball, Okay? my favorite time of year. NCAA tournament and Easter is like crescendo of joy. <clears throat> David and Goliath. Anybody who watches basketball knows the story of David and Goliath. Come on, everybody. You know, some little David beats some mighty Goliath. And what does David do? He gets a little sling. Wham! Where does he hit Goliath? Who knows? Right here. Smashes his what? his skull. And then David runs up to him and it gets gruesome. He cuts his head off. And then David does something really weird. He takes his head to Jerusalem. Now you're thinking, well, Jerusalem, right? That makes sense. No, it doesn't make a bit of sense at all. Because at that time, Jerusalem was inhabited by the Jebusites, which were the enemies of the Israelites. And so David takes Goliath's head to a hostile area to Jerusalem. Why in the world did he do that? We don't know what he did with it there. Maybe he buried it on a hill. Because we're told a thousand years later, Matthew 27, 33, that Jesus Christ is crucified outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. There's one story being told in the Bible over and over and over and over again because God's trying to grab our attention. The only way to take the wall down between us and God is to place our trust and lean and wait upon Christ and say, you know what, I'm not perfect, I'll never be perfect, I'm trusting in your perfection, and we're going to swap lives, your life from my life, which is what it's really all about. All right, Tale of Two Cities, great piece of literature. Some people consider it one of the greatest pieces of literature ever. I know you're very familiar with it. Let me quote the opening lines. It was the best of times, right? It was the worst of times. 
It was an age of wisdom. It was an age of foolishness. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. This great piece of literature was written during the French Revolution during a very, very dark time. The Frenchman, Charles Darnay, and the Englishman, Sidney Carton, are both in love with the lovely Lucy Manet. Lucy loves the Frenchman, Darnay. It must have been his accent. We don't know. But she loves the Frenchman. She decides for the Frenchman, and they get married. And Carton, the Englishman, goes and sees Lucy one day. And he looks at Lucy and says, Lucy, I know that you love Darnay. I want you to know this. Even though you don't love me back, unrequited love, even though you don't love me back, I want you to know this. I would gladly give my life for your happiness. And then years later, Darnay has to go to Paris, where Darnay is arrested, and he's sentenced to death by having his head cut off by the guillotine. So now Sidney Carton goes to Paris, and he sees Lucy. This is his moment. He's finally got Darnay, his nemesis, out of the way, and he can have the lovely Lucy all to himself, right? This makes perfect sense. And instead, he goes to prison. And it just so happens that Carton and Darnay look a whole lot alike. And he tells Darnay, we're going to switch places. And I'm going to allow the guilty man to go free, and me, an innocent man, is going to be sentenced to death, and I'm going to have my head cut off at the guillotine. Because what matters to me most is Lucy and her happiness, and I want you and her to be in each other's presence, and I am going to take your place. Now, Right before his head is cut off, he stands up to that guillotine and he says these words. It is a far, far better thing than I am doing than I have ever done. Sounds a lot like Jesus Christ. Why does he do it? This story is inspired by God and we find this story all over the place. We can't get away from it. This is why we call it the inescapable story because God keeps reminding us of this story. What is happening here is when we take our separation, our isolation, we acknowledge there's a wall between us and God, and we place that isolation, those sins, that wall up on this cross, then God Almighty puts all the sins that have ever been committed by every person, and He places them on Jesus Christ. And the person who is guilty of all that goes completely free. It's the greatest story ever told. Jesus Christ gets my life and I get his perfect, free, sinless life without separation whatsoever. It's the greatest story that is ever told. Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Now they are separated. Why are they separated? So that you and I don't have to be. Jesus Christ is abandoned on the cross so that you and I don't have to be. Everybody, you ever think about this? You ever think about this? Look, if it's all about the cross here, if it's all about this, right? Why didn't Jesus just show up on Thursday? He could have come on Thursday. They could have had the Lord's Supper, communion, Holy Communion. Friday, he could have been crucified in the tomb, right, for three days. Sunday, resurrected. Monday, he heads back to heaven. It's like a long weekend. <laughs> what, 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 what's with 33 years of life? Why the life? Why the life? Why spend the life? I'll tell you why he spends the life. Because he needed to live a full life, a complete life, a perfect life. Because what God is doing, he's saying, you know what? You take your life. <laughs> 
and give it to me and I'm going to give my life. And my unity with the Father and the fact there is no wall between the Father and me and I'm going to give that to you. Would you like to swap lives with Jesus Christ? And that's what this is all about. But we have to acknowledge it. We have to lean upon that. We have to trust in that. And when we do, and we put our isolation, our separation, our sins on the cross and trust Christ, we get Jesus' life and we walk right into the presence of God. That's what Leviticus is really all about. How can I reenter the presence of God? So I'm going to end with a prayer in just a moment. Before I do, I'm going to remind you, as I always do, Pastor Derek would love to meet you over there to something we call Grace in Five, if you're brand new, if you're brand new. Our prayer team is over here on this wall. But for those of you, and some of you are here this morning, this is the greatest story. It's the most consistent story. It is the only story that God is telling. He's telling it over and over again. It is his heartbeat. And because of that, I know this. There are a number of us in this room that God's whispering to right now. Don't leave here. God's whispering to your heart saying, you know what? Whatever you do, don't leave here until you place your isolation from God, your sins, your separation from God on this cross. Don't walk out of here without doing that. Instead, place it on this cross and walk into the presence of God. Psalm 24 says, who can ascend the holy mountain of God? Who can enter into his holy place? The person that has clean hands. There's nothing I can do like Lady Macbeth to get these spots out of my hand. There's nothing I can do. I can only put them on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to enter into the presence of God. I can't be good enough. I can't force myself. I can't yell enough. Lady Macbeth trying to do that. She said, come out. It wouldn't come out. We can't force it out. All we can do is put it on the cross, trust in the cross, and believe that we walk into God's presence. It's his protocol for us. So I'm going to pray. And after I'm done praying, here's what's going to happen. Most of this auditorium is going to get up and just go. We're so happy about Easter. We want to get out there and we want to enjoy the day. For those of you here this morning, that you hear the Spirit whispering in your heart and saying, don't leave here. As the crowd goes away, you just very quietly, very, very quietly, slip down here, put your hand in the ashes, leave them on the cross, come over here and wash your hands. And then I'd like an opportunity to pray with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this inescapable story. You love us so much that you just keep retelling it over and over again, all throughout Scripture, all throughout life, all throughout literature. You love us so much that you don't want us to miss it. And I hope none of us misses it this morning. God, I hope all of us are immersed in your presence. May we be bathed in your presence like never before. It's where we long to be. It's where you long for us to be. So, Lord, for every single person that you're whispering to their hearts this morning, you're saying, don't leave here without leaving your separation, your isolation on that cross. God, help all of us to respond in the way that you would have us to respond today. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace both now and forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord. In your holy name, Father, thank you. Amen. God bless you, everyone. Have a wonderful Easter. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.